the Buddha reminded us to contemplate death, <coughs> the impermanence of life regularly to bring up urgency in the practice. Venerable Ananda, he asked, the Buddha asked him, how often do you contemplate death? He said, three times a day. Said, Not enough, Ananda. The Tathagata contemplates death every in-breath and out-breath. Constantly ever mindful of impermanence. You'll notice we come into contact with death all the time through the news. People visit here, often they talk about their relatives, friends who died. Sometimes they invite us to visit the sick, the dying. Just the other day I visited Kuntan's mother, she's 95. This morning she died. Just a few days, she's already gone. <clears throat> the other day Malika's mother died, someone else who's visited the monastery many times. These are the Dhammadutas, the heavenly messengers, constantly reminding us, urging us on to practice, because we're not here forever. Every one of us must die. I must die, you must die. And our tendency is always towards complacency. And we're always trying to make our little nest in the world, get everything comfortable just the way we like. <coughs> so that we don't have to think about dukkha don't have to face up to dukkha and think about the cause of dukkha and solving it. If we leave our mind untaught, unguided, then we tend to set aside the Four Noble Truths and we're more just into finding comfort, pleasure, happiness in the here and now. Like those little mice that come into buildings and make their little nest in the corner and try to make it as warm and as secure as they can. We often, we don't want to look more deeply into the nature of our existence. Even as monks we can be like that. When we come into the monastery often we're required to learn many new things, so we put effort into learning the Vinaya. <coughs> learning how to meditate, learning the chanting and so on. And after a few years we, we've done what we need to do to be able to live as a Buddhist monk. We're getting support, we know how to chant, wear the robes, we know the rules, we can tell people how to meditate and so on. Often the mind still has its habit and goes looking for comfort. So we reach a kind of plateau in our practice where we can do what we need to do, but often the mind still goes towards complacency. 
Now the Buddha encouraged us to keep reflecting on death, impermanence. We chant, we listen to Dhamma, and then we bring the Dhamma into our own hearts and minds. <clears throat> the way we practice Dhamma is open aiko. The Dhamma, we incline our mind towards the Dhamma, turning inwards to see the truth of things. Again, our complacency is as long as we can find distraction and things to do and indulge in and find out about in the world, going out through our senses, then we often we forget the Dhamma. We occupy ourselves with all kinds of things. But this practice is about turning the attention inwards, to go deeper, to see the true nature of things. To see what is it that is born and dies. Come to know the nature of these five candors as they are, as impermanent, dukkha, without any core or essence or self or soul. We're training the mind to see that, to come into touch with the reality of this experience, to know it for as it is. That requires training. So we train in the Dhamma Vinaya, learning to pay attention to what we're doing, bringing up mindfulness, mindfulness of our precepts and the Patimokha training and the sila, mindfulness of our meditation objects, techniques, developing some samadhi, stillness, calmness of mind, so that we can contemplate. Sometimes we contemplate in order to develop stillness. As the stillness comes, then we use that to develop more contemplation. But all of this requires effort. So we have to learn to arouse energy and pull the mind out of its complacency. Even as a bhikkhu, we can get stuck into complacency habits because that's how we've been behaved for many years, months, years through our lifetime and even many lifetimes we've been doing that. As long as things go well we tend to turn off and go into hibernation mode like a computer and only when we get a jolt, some kind of crisis or problem arises, maybe that brings us back to thinking more deeply about the Dhamma. Ajahn Chah used to say why we should ask ourselves, why, why was I born every day? Bring your mind back to the present moment and direct it right to the experience of this life as a human being. We're here because of ignorance, delusion, misunderstanding of truth. <coughs> the Buddha pointed out that's the cause of all our problems, our cravings, attachments and clinging. 
It's what keeps bringing the mind back to suffering. Even when things are going well, when we are complacent, ignorance is still conditioning the mind. So the conscientious practitioner, the diligent bhikkhu, they keep looking, investigating more, establishing mindfulness, investigating the truth, leaving no stone unturned, as it were, because the nature of the conditioning process it's envelops us, it surrounds us, it affects everything we experience, the way we experience and perceive things, the way we know things, the way we think, our views, opinions, the way we relate to the world. Constantly the mind is dropping back into ignorance and delusion. So we really have to battle to bring it out of that, and battle to bring up mindfulness through the practice and remind ourselves that we only have maybe a short period of time to do this while we're here in this world. As we heard last night from Lumpur Wen, a lot of the practice is about frustrating desire. The ignorance conditions desire, which conditions clinging and attachment, conditions becoming and more birth. But in order to let go of desire, to see it let go, then we have to also frustrate it in order to restrain this habit of the mind fed by delusion that keeps creating more desire, more clinging and suffering the consequences of that. So practice often there's tension involved as we frustrate desire. We don't always follow our moods or what we want. Don't always let ourselves get what we want. And that's not always easy. The very word frustration, it doesn't sound very pleasant. Who wants to live a life of frustration? But obviously, as Lumpur Wen mentioned last night, it's a skillful means, an ubaya, that we learn how to frustrate our desires with wisdom and for peace, not just as an end in itself or endless stress and discomfort through frustration, but actually as a skillful tool to help observe desire, observe it at work, then start to frustrate it, let it go. When we begin practice, often many small desires, we can quickly see success. <coughs> Most of us have the experience, we learn meditation, we learn to sit for longer periods and walk meditation. Already you're learning to frustrate desires, like small ones, just to change posture or scratch an itch or go and do something else. We frustrate the desire, we're just watching it rather than following it. And you learn how impermanent desire is in these small ways, is to rise, pass away. You might have a desire to go and get a drink or have food, but you don't follow it. You don't die and you don't 
suffer, you can just watch it and the desire passes and maybe the mind is more peaceful afterwards by just letting it go. So right in the beginning of practice we can already experience some liberation, the liberating effect of, of the training, learning to train ourselves, discipline ourselves, bring up mindfulness, observe our mind and often just quietly restraining different impulses and reactions and then letting go. And that's a skill that you develop. And you, once you understand the way it liberates the mind, frees the mind, then it's a little bit more enjoyable. We get more energy to do it <coughs> once we appreciate the value of it. Maybe you can move on to bigger, more profound things. And we learn to be more at peace, at ease with painful feelings as we meditate. Or unpleasant experiences that we would normally try and solve through following different desires, through distraction or trying to get things better or differently than what we have. As we gain more skill in the practice, maybe we can do it just through our own practice of mindfulness and not giving in to craving. As we put more effort into mindfulness practice and using the sila as a foundation, then there will be times when we might develop some inner contentment and peace, and a peace of samadhis directly caused by the dropping of craving. We stop our mind from following its usual obsessions of liking and disliking, following its moods, indulging its moods, different moods, mental states. We learn to allow them to arise and then let them pass away without getting involved with them. With that we gain some steadiness of mind, stillness of mind. <coughs> Much of the practice then is learning just to calm down body and speech on the outside through restraint in the sila and then the verbalization of our moods and views and opinions on the inside through mindfulness practice. The more we do this, then the more we can look and go more deeply down to the very root of our clinging. Really contemplate these five candors in the way the mind habitually is identifying with them as self and the condition reactions and feel more desire, more craving. And one thing leads to another. The more we give in to the hindrances and craving, the more that will condition attachment, the more that will condition ignorance. So the whole cycle reinforces itself if we never look into it. But if we experience more, more peace and the mind calms down more, then we can start to see where we can cut off that process, that conditioning process, and let things be look at the candors more impartially, in an unbiased, detached, detached way.
And this is why we come together regularly to practice. Partly we rely on our fellow monastics, Kalyanamitta, to help us bring up energy. If we're always on our own at our kuti, sometimes we'll have energy and be diligent. Sometimes we just become distracted or just want to sleep. Energy level drops, our faith, our interest in practice can sway. So we come together for periods, for group meetings. You see, you try harder when there's other people around. If you see other people practicing, then we practice. You hear other people's words in the Dhamma that can help us to understand the Dhamma more. Other times we're on our own and we do have to depend on ourselves and learn how to keep practicing. As Ajahn Chah used to say, whether you're in the group or on your own, you keep practicing. It's what you're aiming for. If you really have that sense of urgency, you see that life is slipping away from us. Every day is passing by and we can't reclaim it, we can't buy it back or bargain it back. All the time that's passed by, it's gone. That's it. If you really see that, then you'll want to practice wherever you are, whatever the situation you're at, on your own or amongst many people. You might say that's our first aim in the practice is to get to the point where we can Keep the Vinaya comfortably. We're happy to be following the Vinaya as a bhikkhu. We've learned how to meditate and we're happy to keep applying the techniques of mindfulness, sitting, walking. We've learned how to reflect on Dhamma, to use our mind, use the Dhamma teachings we've heard and then apply them regularly. And we're happy to do that. You might say that's somebody who's established in the Dhamma. You don't know whether they're attained or not, and what level of samadhi or insight they have, but they're one who is willing and want to practice. They see the benefit of it, they don't doubt about that. They're willing to put up with different conditions, situations that arise. As a bhikkhu, we don't always get what we want. A lot of our practice is about being patient with conditions, the heat, the cold, feeling full, feeling hungry, wanting to speak, not wanting to speak, wanting something that you haven't got, wanting to get rid of things that you have got, and so on. A lot of our practice is about being learning to be at ease, practicing within the different situations and the conditions that come up daily, on a daily basis. Not always just giving in to craving, desiring this, wanting this, wanting to get rid of that, happy with this, not happy with that. As we chant, delighting now here, now there. When we study the Vinaya, we reflect on this. You know, the Vinaya has come to us from an enlightened mind. The Buddha 
in the modern era we have our teacher Ajahn Chah who skillfully gave us ways of training, the monastic form, guidelines. It's all about highlighting our desires, our attachments, and then a lot of it is frustrating them, teaching us not to follow desire because it leads to suffering. So it's actually a skillful way to help us, lead us out of suffering. Even though that the practice of it is frustrating, so it makes us Sometimes we get tired or fed up, keeping the rules, not always doing what we want, getting what we want. If you can step back and see the big picture, you realize it's actually training you in a way that you probably can't find anywhere else in the world. Any other walk of life is not going to be as refined in it. Training the mind to drop desire, drop attachment, bring up mindfulness, bring up wisdom. Generally, we're well supported here in the, this monastery. We have enough food, enough things, but still we'll notice the mind is never quite satisfied. There's always desire bubbling up, complaining or seeking something more in the back of the mind. <coughs> so we always have to be alert. Again, we have to keep coming back to the practice, contemplating what's going on in our mind understanding what is a wholesome Dhamma, what is an unwholesome Dhamma, knowing what we have to develop, bring up, and what we have to abandon, let go of. Even with the support we have, if the mind is still looking for more, it'll go looking. We have all kinds of rules to guide us. When we eat, how we use the requisites, how we use the requisites to come into the monastery. We have a central store and we request for things if a need arises. Sometimes Ajahn Chah used to say, if you're, you have a need arise, well just wait. Don't just act on that impulse, that urge. Wait and see after a few days whether you still really need that thing that you are wanting. Maybe after a while you realize, mm, don't need it after all. I'm quite happy without it. In the way of the lay life is as soon as you want something you go out and buy it or order it online or whatever. In the way of the monk is maybe you just wait and see. Perhaps you don't even need that thing after all. Even more so with lay people. Lay people always offer, what, what do you need venerable? Can I get you something venerable? Doesn't mean to say you have to take up the offer. You might use it as an opportunity to let go of some desire, frustrate your own desire, and go to a higher place, raise your mind above desire, let go of something. Or sometimes we want them to make an offer and they don't. Some monks even get angry with lay people because they don't offer them what they want, when they want. Desire is always a very tricky thing manipulates our minds, so it's always look, trying to find ways to get what it wants, get, find excuses, whether it's to do with material things or just to do with the practice. 
it's meditation and we've always got an excuse why we should do something else instead not meditate, not sit, not walk, not stay up late worried about our health, worried about what we're going to do tomorrow I remember when I was on Tudong about six rains, seven rains went to stay with Ajahn Bunchu, we went to a abandoned little monastery in southern Thailand I was always impressed because he was thinking of building a monastery there I was just staying to practice but once in a few weeks he'd have to go to Bangkok he had relatives there sometimes he'd have to go there on business well, at, that, at that time we were practicing staying up every night, all night now we used to think, mm, tomorrow he's got to travel 12 hours on a bus. Probably he'll take a bit rest tonight. He never did. He still went up, went practicing all night, even though he'd be traveling a long way, tiresome journey the next day. I always found that impressive because he was clearly not giving in to the excuses of the mind. He didn't want to give up his practice. Sometimes it's like that. The mind wants its comfort and it's got good reasons. But sometimes there's a higher Dhamma available. It's whether we take it up or not, take the opportunity to practice or not. We always follow the easy way. Well, <clears throat> like the body, when we don't exercise, it gets flabby. The mind gets flabby as well we lose our strength of mind, our ability to frustrate Kilesa. If you follow Kilesa every day, every time, we get to the point where you're, you're addicted to Kilesa. Every impulse you have to follow it, everything you have to say, every desire you have to act on, every unwholesome mental state you attach to and grab onto. The mind gets flabby, doesn't have that elasticity, the flexibility to be able to stop and choose. Should I follow this? Should I not? Should I indulge this or not? Should I do this or not? When we overcome that, we overcome the hindrances through effort, putting effort into mindfulness practice, reflecting on the Dhamma, then you get this flexibility of mind, you know, the different jetasikas that arise with samadhi. <coughs> the mind is light, flexible, you can manipulate it in a wholesome way to bring it to the Dhamma. It's workable, usable. You know, all the good qualities, good mental states and mental factors arise as the mind becomes more calm, it calms down, becomes more stable, more still, then it's in the best place to contemplate. It's free, it's empty of desire temporarily. So then you can contemplate things as they are in an unbiased way. That thing that you wanted, maybe you realize it doesn't matter. Or the thing you wanted to get rid of, you maybe realize it doesn't matter. If you come back to the re recollection of death, well, 
if this is the moment of your death, well, what do you want in your mind? You want your mind to be as bright, as free, unattached as possible, as still as possible, so that it can prevent desire forming and coming in and ruining everything. You want to be able to accept the impermanence of life itself, of the candors. And the candors are just things that arise and cease. Form, feeling, perception, thought formation, sense consciousness. In the end, none of them are any provide any real security, lasting, lasting refuge, because they're all impermanent conditions of mind. In the end, we just have one breath in, and then it doesn't go out. One breath out, doesn't come in again. The, this body is destined to disintegrate. It won't last. The feelings we get through it, through our sense organs, just arise and pass away. If we keep giving in to Sukhavetana, seeking Sukhavetana, giving into it, seeking pleasure all the time, well, we get hooked on that. If we're not getting the pleasure we want, we're not happy. If we keep giving in to Dukkavetana, we get hooked on that always reacting with aversion, struggling to get away from it. We keep giving in to adukamasuka vetana, you know, vetana that's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It conditions dullness, delusion, lack of clarity, lack of insight. All vetana can be the, the basis for Ignorance, conditioning, craving, conditioning, attachment. Or we can bring up mindfulness and reflect, contemplate it. It's impermanent. It's not self. So tonight is uh, one prep. We can maybe put more effort into our practice, sitting and walking a bit later than normal. Consider this may be your last light of your life. What if that was the truth? This is the last night of your life. How would you want to practice? And just go to sleep, dreaming, fantasizing, indulging. Or do you want to put more effort into bringing up mindfulness, stilling your mind, contemplating the Dhamma? So I'll leave you with those reflections tonight.